Where there is no vision, the people perish. You heard that? Well, thanks to the King James Version, Proverbs 29.18 is pretty much misunderstood. (laughs) Where there is no vision, the people perish. I've heard politicians use that to talk about the need to have a, a, a compelling vision for the future of the United States. And, and it's just so ironic the particular politician that, that I remember who said that, his personal life was in shambles. The, the New International Version actually gives a better translation than the King James. The New International Version says, where there is no revelation, the people cast off restraint. The thought is without the Bible, will go nuts. That's a real loose paraphrase of Proverbs twenty nine eighteen. And um, I was reading just this morning, I thought, you know, I thought, well, maybe through the week I'll scan through the headlines and try to pick some headlines to read to you. And I thought, no, I'll just look Sunday morning. I bet there'll be enough then to mention. And there, there were plenty. In fact, I had plenty to choose from. Let me read some headlines that I got from the news this morning. Um, where do I start? Politicians accused of sexual misconduct in 2017. Australian Parliament approves same-sex marriage. Uh, California governors warn devastating wildfires are the new normal. Holiday decorations should be culturally sensitive and inclusive. But here's the best one. Hilarious photos prove Walmart is literally the wildest place in America. (laughs) And I admit, I clicked on that to see. (laughs) And they weren't kidding. Some of those pictures were absolutely crazy. One nation under God. You know, as believers in Jesus Christ, we can feel a lot like Sodom felt Uh, Lot felt in Sodom. Peter describes Lot's experience in Sodom when he says that he was a righteous man who was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds that he saw and heard. And I thought, you know, that is a lot like the Christian who is walking in the light and, and who lives in the United States of America or so many parts of our world today not just the U.S. But here, as Americans, we tend to be very much aware of how much our society has changed just in the last 20 years. It has really taken a nosedive. And it's, it's hard, after reading the news and watching the news or reading the paper, to wonder, where is God? Where is the Lord's work in all of what we see happening in our country? Where is the good news when evil seems so rampant? Well, Christ gives us a wonderful perspective on that in Mark chapter 4. So turn there with me, if you would, to Mark chapter 4. And we'll continue our series on the book of Mark. And I mentioned it's a series because it's so important um, as we go through Mark to remember that the Gospel of Mark, and really, really any book that you, that you go through or that you are taught through in any capacity by any teacher, is one long message. It's not 
you know, 25 standalone messages. They all connect, or they all should connect. There should be a flow. And, um, and that's what we want to make sure that we're doing as we go through the Gospel of Mark. So think about where we've been so far. Jesus has appeared on the scene and has been announcing the good news. In fact, Mark calls it the good news of the kingdom, uh, the gospel of the kingdom. And that is specifically that the long-awaited, promised kingdom of God, the literal, physical kingdom of God on earth with the Messiah reigning from Jerusalem, the anticipation of all these Old Testament promises, Jesus appears on the scene and says, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, repent. And, and make yourself available to enter into this kingdom. But instead, the, the nation of Israel, led by their leaders, is going to, has already sort of tipped their hand that they're not going to repent, they're not going to change their mind, they're not going to change their mindset, but instead they're attributing Jesus, who is offering the kingdom and validating that message by doing miracles, they're attributing Jesus' miracles not to the power of the Holy Spirit, but to the power of Satan. And Christ says, if you persist in that view, uh, the kingdom is basically going to be withdrawn from this generation for a future generation. And as we saw last week in chapter 3, uh, Jesus began to switch his method of teaching from just plain outright teaching to parables. And he explained in the parable of the soils when the disciples basically asked him, why are you teaching in parables? He begins to explain, if you don't understand this, how will you understand any parable? And so he goes through and explains each of these soils as different people have different responses to God's word. When God's word is cast like seed on the ground, different people have different responses to it. Some are like the soil on the road and receives it you know, just right on the surface, and Satan comes and takes it away, and there's no root taken whatsoever. Some are like the rocky ground, who have very shallow soil. That is, when the, the word is cast on them, it takes root, but as soon as afflictions come, it goes away. Some are like thorns, that is, the, the, seen, the, the, so, the seed sown in thorns, and they're distracted. They're preoccupied. They've got so much going on in their lives, they don't have time to add anything religious. But then there is the good soil. These are the ones that hear the Word of God, who accept the Word of God, and who apply the Word of God in their life, and they bear fruit, uh, 30, 60, 100-fold. And so Jesus is challenging his hearers to be that last type of soil, to evaluate the type of soil that your life is, and wherever you are, become the one on whom receives the word of God with an eager heart and then bears fruit. Well, like we say, one message connects right to the next. And so as we pick up here in chapter 4, starting in verse 21, Jesus goes on and expands on the idea of the good soil, but he uses a different metaphor to do it. Look at Mark 4, starting in verse 21. And he was saying to them, a lamp is not brought to be put under a basket, is it? Or under a bed? Is it not brought to be put on a lampstand? For nothing is hidden except to be revealed, nor has anything been secret, but that it would come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. 
So Christ is basically saying, look, just as the soil receives the seed and does something with it, so a person who has a lampstand doesn't come in the room and stick it under the bed. They put it on the lampstand. If you have a lamp, you don't stick it under a bed or you don't put it under a, a basket. Uh, you may have a translation that says a peck measure, which I'm so glad they've updated that because most of us don't know what that is. But a peck, peck measure is like a bowl or a basket. You don't put a lamp and hide it. You let it shine. And the Word of God in your life is not to be hidden. It's to be revealed, which is what he means when he says, uh, just as the seed is hidden in the heart, and then it basically is to be revealed. Nothing is hidden except that it is to be revealed, Jesus says. God's Word that you have in your heart is not to remain in your heart, it's to bear fruit. For a long time, uh, many years, I drove a car that didn't have air conditioning. And for a state that basically has summer nine months out of the year, that's, that's not a lot of fun. So whenever I would drive, I'd always have the windows down. And that's no big deal. I mean, believe it or not, you get used to it after a while. And, but the problem that you really can't get used to is when you want to listen to the radio and you also have to drive on the highway. If the windows are down and you've got 18-wheelers roaring all around you, you've got to have the radio up pretty loud to be able to hear it. And so I'd crank the radio up, you know, pretty loud. And then I'd pull into town and I'd pull up at a stoplight and, you know, people are looking over at me like I'm some lowrider or something because my music is just blaring loud. And, it, and I turn it down and I think, wow, I had no idea the music was that loud. It's all relative, isn't it? It's so difficult to hear the radio with the 18-wheelers roaring. It's so difficult to hear the Word of God when we have the world roaring around us. And all of a sudden, when you get to a place to where you aren't in the world and you realize there's the Word. If we have a distraction in our lives to where we can't hear the Word of God, kind of going back to the thorny soil, then we need to do whatever we need to do in our lives to get rid of those thorns. The seed is not to take root in our heart and then to be hidden. The seed is to bear fruit. Remember, we read in chapter 3 that Jesus' family came and thought he was crazy and wanted to take him away. They rolled up the wagon with the people with the white coats, and Jesus and his family came to take, uh, Jesus' family came to take Jesus away. In that same context, we see that his leaders called him possessed. So Jesus' family thinks he's crazy. His leaders think he's possessed. And Jesus' disciples are struggling to understand the parables. Jesus was a disappointment to most of the people that he was around, except to the Father. Jesus spoke to the people in parables really as an act of mercy. Uh, remember when we talked about why did he speak to them in parables, he actually... Uh, tells us why. He says back in uh, verse 12, while seeing they may hear, while seeing they may see and not perceive, and while hearing they may hear and not understand. Otherwise they might return and be forgiven. He spoke to them in parables as an act of mercy because with more revelation comes greater condemnation if you don't act on it. If the word is sown in your heart and you don't do anything with it, then there comes greater condemnation or greater discipline. This is why the book of James says that don't let many of you presume to be teachers because teachers will be judged more strictly. 
that's a hard verse for me as a teacher. And typically, the reason that that's true is because teachers oftentimes uh, are exposed to more truth. And as a result, they're given, they're, they have greater expectation by the Lord to live that truth. And that is, that is a challenge. It is a huge challenge, as any of you who have taught are aware of. It's a high responsibility. Those who are seeking to truly find the truth in, would hear the parables, and they would hear a story, and they would apply it. But those who just were coming to hear Jesus tell a good story, that's all they would hear. And so the parable would reveal truth, and it would conceal truth at the same time. It was a genius of Jesus' teaching. So this is what he means when, when he goes on in verse 24, when he says, he was saying to them, take care what you listen to. By your standard of measure, it will be measured to you, and more will be given you besides. For whoever has, to him more shall be given. And whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. That sort of sounds like a, a twist between a tongue twister and today's politicians. Whoever has, to more, to him more shall be given. That sounds very political, doesn't it? And whoever doesn't have, even what he has shall be taken away. Well, it's not a prophecy of American politics. It's Jesus is using an illustration of something that we, in our culture, don't really relate to. When we go to the grocery store, we have prepackaged stuff. I mean, you get a gallon of this, you get a quart of that, you get a pound of this. It's, pre, it's prepackaged, it's measured, and you know exactly what it is. But in antiquity, and even not that long ago here in America, when you go to the store, you would have to have your product measured out for you. You know, I would like a pound of coffee, and the guy behind the counter would get it out and actually measure a pound of coffee for you. And so when Christ says, as a merchant, your standard of measure, the standard by which you measure could be that you would cheat people or you could be generous. And Jesus uses that illustration fit right into what he's been teaching about how you receive the Word of God. If you are listening to Jesus with a generous heart and an open heart, then even more will be given to you. If you hear the Word of God and are committed to applying it, God will open up the Word and reveal even more to you so that you can apply even more. If when you hear the Word of God, your standard is, you've got nothing to teach me, you've got nothing to say to me, Lord, or if you open the word simply to have your opinion confirmed rather than to have what you think challenged and, and grow, then even what you have, Jesus says, will be taken away. It's the same idea of the parables. If you listen to a story with the idea of, Lord, what can you teach me? More will be given. But if you're there just to say, look, entertain me and I will judge whether or not I like it, then even what you have will be taken away. So it's a warning clearly, but it's also a promise, and it's the promise that I hope that you'll, you'll lean into when Jesus says, he who has ears to hear, listen. The promise is that if you will apply the scripture that you hear, if you're teachable, God will give you even more. The Lord will give you even more. We want to invest in stock or in some kind of investment that bears fruit, and so does the Lord. I think the reason why some people make very little progress in their spiritual life is because they've heard the same things over and over, and instead of it spurring them to apply it to their life, 
they hear the same thing over and over, and it just sort of calcifies over their heart. And they just think, yep, I got that, I got that. Well, getting it is not knowing it. Getting it is living it. Getting it is applying it. It's not enough to know to have kindness or to be gracious. It's, it's enough to be kind and to be gracious. Maybe as you read the word, you're challenged by it, as I have been recently, not to worry or be anxious. So how's that going? Maybe you've been challenged to share your faith with somebody the Lord has brought across your path. And every time that you see this person, you almost feel this tap on your shoulder. Say something. But you don't. Maybe you need to make amends with somebody, with a family member or a friend, and yet you remain reluctant to obey. Those who respond to the truth receive more truth. Those who don't respond to the truth that you already have, why would God give you greater, more truth? Because if he does that, it's just more judgment or more discipline. But if you will apply... The Bible promises, if you will apply what you have, if that tap on the shoulder that you hear from the Holy Spirit, you will follow through with, then Jesus says, then what? Then he who has, even more will be given to you. What specific truths did Christ reveal to his apostles? Well, we saw last week that he's revealing to them what he calls the mystery of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God wasn't a mystery, as I've said as we've talked through this series, the kingdom of God was very clearly, they understood what the kingdom of God was, but there is a mystery, Jesus said to it. The mystery of the kingdom of God, as we've seen, is that the kingdom will be delayed. There's this, this indeterminate period of time that we know includes the church age, and Jesus will go on later to explain to his disciples that, there, that he's going to build his church. But this, this truth that Jesus reveals in this part of the text right now is the part that helps us as we read the news. It's the part when we look and turn the television on and we think, good grief, Lord, the wheels are coming off. It's this part of Jesus' teaching that we need to really look closely at. Look at verse 26. And he was saying, the kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed upon the soil. And he goes to bed at night and gets up by day, and the seed sprouts and grows. How? He himself does not know. The soil produces crops by itself. First the blade, then the head, then the mature grain in the head. But when the crop permits, he immediately puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. What's he saying here? He's using again this illustration of a sower who sows seed. But this time he illustrates something different. This time he's showing that the farmer or the sower doesn't cause it to grow. In fact, he doesn't even know how it happens. Jesus said the process begins by itself. That word that he uses here uh, for by itself is the Greek word automate or automate. And obviously we get our English word automate or automatic. It's something that happens all on its own all by itself, that God has programmed a seed to work. And not only does it work all by itself, but it works in, in such an amazing way we don't even know how it works. You can have a package of seed on the shelf for years, 
and finally decide, you know what, this year I'm going to plant those. Pull it off, tear it open, plant it, and it grows. Everything that was needed for that seed to become whatever that seed is is programmed automatically inside the seed. We don't know how it works. We just know that it works. This is what Jesus is teaching. And God intends to strengthen your faith as you look at the world around you with this truth. Here's a principle that we pull from the text, that God's plan is progressing in spite of what you don't see or understand. God's plan in the world is progressing in spite of what you don't see or understand. This parable uh, teaches us that. Remember one year, Kathy planted uh, potatoes in our garden in the backyard, and I was playing hide-and-seek with our daughters, and we happened to be, you know, running around and playing hide-and-seek, and I saw Kathy planted potatoes right there, and she covered them up. I saw it. And, you know, 10, 20 minutes later, I came back and looked at them, and nothing had happened. They hadn't grown an inch. About a week or two later, I came back and looked. You know what? Nothing. Still no potatoes. Now, there's a part of me that thought, you know, I saw her plant those potatoes, but maybe I should dig them up and take a peek at them because (laughs) nothing's happening. You know, we chuckle at that, and I give that as a, a true story, but the fact is the temptation in our lives is to wonder, God, nothing is happening. I know the seed is planted, but nothing is happening. Maybe you've shared your faith with somebody in your family or with a neighbor, and the seed is there. In fact, they may clearly understand the gospel, but nothing is happening. You may have a relationship in which you have tried to make amends. You have tried to reach out, try to be loving, to try to be Christ-like, to live the fruit of the Spirit in front of this person, but nothing is happening. Why? Remember this parable. God's plan is progressing in spite of what you don't see or understand. There are several truths in this parable that Jesus teaches us, and I'll show them to you right here in the text. But here's the truth, first of all, that the farmer doesn't understand it. Jesus said the farmer doesn't understand the process. Second, he doesn't make the process happen. It happens by itself, or we know that God programmed it. So first, he doesn't understand the process. Second, he doesn't make the process happen. But here's the third thing. He is certain of its outcome. He is certain of its outcome. The process is described, Jesus described it in uh, verse 28. Look at that. The soil produces crops by itself. First the blade, then the head, then the mature grain in the head, But when the crop permits, he immediately puts in the sickle. So Jesus describes this as a process, that God's work in the world, first this, then this, then this, and then when the harvest comes, there's no more delay. Immediately, he puts in the sickle. Our problem is we're waiting for the blade to show up. And when the blade shows up, we think, Lord, when is the head going to show up? And when the head shows up, we're thinking, when's the mature grain going to show up? And then we're going, Lord, when's the harvest? We always have this challenging, nagging doubt in our lives because we want the next step. When if we would just stop and, and look back over the course 
of our life, we can see, wait a minute, I can see steps all along the way that God's led me, that God's led me down, and I can't deny that it's been God. So why am I having such struggle trusting God for the next step? The process of God's plan in the world doesn't make headlines. Jesus described it as a process that can't be hurried, it can't be skipped. And boy, that's, that's important. First then happen, this happens, then this happens, then this happens. There's no skipping steps. God's got a plan, God's got the steps. There's no hurrying it, there's no skipping it, and there's no delaying it. That's the good news. The sequence shows that what is now underground will one day be visible to everybody. Well, that's important because in an age where we have instant everything, our microwaves, our shopping, our one-click purchases on Amazon, we come to expect that our prayers are going to be exactly the same. Jesus encourages us to have a persistent faith toward an outcome that is certain. Look at verse 30 as he continues. And he said, how shall we picture the kingdom of God? Or by what parable shall we present it? It's like a mustard seed, which when sown upon the soil, though it is is smaller than all the seeds that are upon the soil, yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and forms large branches so that the birds of the air can nest under its shade. So now Christ gets specific. He uses a specific particular seed as an illustration, the mustard plant. It's really small, one of the smallest seeds, but it becomes one of the largest plants, grows to about 10 to 12 feet. And God intends to use this parable as well to strengthen your faith. The first principle we saw was that God's plan is progressing in spite of what you don't see or understand. And here's the second one. God's plan is progressing in spite of its seeming insignificance now. You look at Christianity in the United States and it seems like this mustard plan is withering. It's not growing. But the fact is God's plan is progressing in spite of its seeming insignificance now. Do you remember when you got eyeglasses for the first time? Now, we're all mature in this room. There's probably no one in here that doesn't require at least readers. And if you do, you're in the minority. So I'll just speak to the majority for a second. Remember when you got glasses for the first time? Whether it was readers or like me when I was 13 years old sitting in the front of my math class looking at the board thinking, I probably need glasses. And I remember the first time I put glasses on. You remember the first time you put glasses on? You put them on and it was like, wow, leaves on, trees had leaves. Shapes had edges. Colors were more vibrant. The light was, the whole world was opened up before you. It was there all along, but you didn't see it. You had to have these corrective lenses to make it happen. That's what eyeglasses did. Well, that was when I was 13. Now that I'm older, it's not only eyeglasses, but you've got to have special eyeglasses. They've got to either be, you know, bifocals or trifocals or like these things, what do they call these things? They're uh, progressives. It's like looking through a keyhole. You know, you kind of have to look at things just right. <laughs> and if you don't get it just right, it's terrible. 
There's no good solution. You know what I'm saying? Oh, let's forget the message for a second and let's talk about eyeglasses. There's no good solution. For a, for a few years, I tried another solution, like because for a long time I wore contacts. And before I had to have readers, uh, contacts worked fine. It was like being healed. Just put them in, boop, and you're good. Just take them out at the end of the day, you're good. But, but once I couldn't start reading... I thought, well, what do I do? So the optometrist had an interesting solution. He said, look, for one eye, we'll have a contact that you read. For the other eye, we'll have a contact that you can see far away. I said, really? I said, isn't that going to just make everything blurry? And he said, no. He said, your brain will rewire it, and everything will be clear. Now, he was a salesman, and it, it sort of worked. It sort of worked. But I would always find myself, no matter where I was sitting, it worked as long as nobody sits in front of you in church. Because no, no matter where they sat, it was always the wrong eye. You know? <laughs> so I thought, that's it. I'm going to these progressives. So now I'm doing the keyhole thing. There's no good solution to it. But... During my phase of trying the one eye looks far and one eye looks close contact, I got a great spiritual insight from the scripture. That is how we need to look at life. We tend to look at life just up close. We've got a prescription for one eye. We can see all the problems. We can see all the struggles. We've got 10 reasons why the Word of God, for some reason, in this instance, isn't going to work. That's all we see. All we see is what's right here, the problems. But we need that other eye, the one that sees far. The other prescription we get by looking through the the text as we see the distance. And then all of a sudden, Our brain rewires it, or what we could say, our mind is renewed. That we're not only seeing close, but we're also seeing far. Not only do we see the chaos that's in the world, but we also see God working in the world through these parables, what Jesus has taught us through these parables, that God's word is very active, that the seed is planted and it's growing. And in spite of what we don't see or understand, God is working. We see our problems, but we also see beyond our problems with the other eye, the eye of faith, to what's happening in God's plan. On our own, we are nearsighted. I I like uh, the way Peter says it in 2 Peter 1. He says, He who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. 2 Peter 1 verse 9. And the term that he uses there for short-sighted literally means nearsighted. In fact, the Greek word is where we get our word myopia from it. That Peter says that if you don't think about eternal things, all you think about is this myopic vision. And it's great, you know, it's a great little play on words, myopic. You're so focused on seeing you and not seeing God. But in his time, God's kingdom 
Jesus teaches us, is going to be the largest of all. Right now it seems insignificant. Right now it seems small. It seems a mustard seed. But one day Jesus says it's going to grow and it's going to become everything. George Frederick Handel, in that wonderful Messiah work, quoted the book of Revelation and said these wonderful words that we love to hear sung. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. You've got to keep that in one eye while you look at everything else that you're dealing with Monday through Friday with the other eye. Well, Mark concludes, Jesus concludes in verse 33 and 34. With many such parables, he was speaking the word to them, notice, so far as they were able to hear it. And he did not speak to them without a parable, but he was explaining everything privately to his own disciples. Jesus taught them as they were able to hear it. Jesus teaches you the same way. If you're wondering why the Word of God seems to have no impact, if you're wondering, how come when I go to church, I don't get anything out of it? It may be that God has told you, and you know what the next step is in your spiritual life, but you're reluctant to obey. When you move forward with that obedience, keep reading the Word, and the Word will begin to open up even more, and then you've got to apply that. And then it opens up even more, and you've got to apply that. This is what Jesus is teaching throughout this passage, and it's the application that you and I need to apply. I remember a couple of years ago, Kathy and I were walking down a country road in the springtime, and it's that, that moment in spring where you realize spring came this week. You know what I mean? Because last week, the trees didn't have any leaves. And all of a sudden, you're walking down you know, the country road, and, and all of the trees at once have little, the little leaves popping out. It's like spring has come. It's actually happened. You know, in the dead of winter, have you ever looked at a picture of the spring or the summer and go, wow, that was really green? And then you look at the winter, you look outside now, and you think, it's, it's all dead. Well, the wonderful truth, and what hit me as we were walking down the, the road that day was that, you know, last week when that tree had nothing on it, all the potential for those leaves was there, but it just wasn't showing. It took the spring. It took something in the, the, auto, the automatic system that God has set up in the seasons. It took something to kick in, and that, that, that tree knew it's time to come out and to resurrect. You know, the same is true with us. If you think about the, the seasons, if all of the potential for the seasons is in the dormant tree and all it takes is just the spring to roll around and leaves come out, imagine earth, the curse that earth is under. Once that curse is relieved, what's this world going to be like? You take the curse away. Um, slip over to Romans chapter 8 and let's read, let's end with reading some familiar, wonderful verses that will give us the perspective to, to face the news this week. And honestly, it'll give us some perspective to face whatever struggle it is that you're dealing with, if you'll let it. Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 18. 
I'm going to read through 25. Look at this great truth. Paul writes, I consider, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but we also, ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves, groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body, for in hope we have been saved. But hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. This is what Jesus is teaching in, in the form of this parable. You don't see God's plan in the world, but it is progressing in spite of what you don't see or understand. You don't see his plan, but it is progressing in spite of the fact that it seems insignificant now. And I love the, the picture that Paul gives here of childbirth. Um, you know, I've seen two childbirths, and two is enough. <laughs> it was quite an experience to watch. And any of you women who have given birth can relate to what, what Paul is saying here in this, of the groaning until the, the child comes. And any of you men who have had a kidney stone can also relate to that, <laughs> because as well. But the point is, it's temporary. It's groaning. It's real pain. It's not fake pain. It's real pain. But it's temporary. And it, as Paul says, it's not worthy to be compared with the glory that's coming. So when you look at the relationship in your life that you wonder, God, how in the world is that going to make amend? When you look at the person that you've been praying for for decades who has yet to believe in Jesus Christ, when you look at the problem that seems impossible, unsolvable, when you look at the world political system and how corrupt it is with how the morality of our culture it just continues to go down, we don't lose hope because our hope is not in what we see. As Paul wrote, our hope is in what we do not see. And with perseverance, we eagerly, we wait eagerly for it. Let's pray. Father, we echo the words of David in Psalm 27 as he said, I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. Father, help us to have, have life, to live life with eyes open, both eyes, one that sees close, one that sees far, that we would not be like those who do not have revelation, and as a result, they are cut loose, that without the vision, without revelation, the people perish, that is, that they, they live a life that is just out of control. 
And we know, Father, apart from your word, that would be us. But by your grace, you have revealed to us the truth in the word and the wonderful truth that we can have, that any person can have forgiveness of sins by placing their faith in Jesus, who died upon the cross to pay for their sins and rose again to show that their sins are paid for. With faith in that truth, there is redemption and there is hope for what we do not yet see. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.